Well, I want to share another legendary story from the Old Testament with you today. And uh, actually, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to kind of shift our attention and give some, uh, some props to the ladies. So far, all of our main characters have centered around men. And we need to remember there are some legendary women in the Old Testament as well. In fact, this morning's legendary character is so important that she's only one of two women who had an entire book of the Bible named after her. Anybody know who the two women are who have Old Testament books named after them? Uh, in fact, let, let, let's do this. The first one to type the names of the two women who have Old Testament books of the Bible named after them in the comments section, we're gonna send you a uh, connecting point hydro flask like this one right here. This one's mine, I drank out of it, so I'm not gonna send you that one, but uh, we'll send you a brand new one. But the first person to type the names of the two ladies who are uh, the, have the distinction of having Old Testament books named after them, get a free connecting point hydro flask. And so Pastor Brian, as you're uh, monitoring the comments, would you please make note of whoever that is? Hopefully somebody had time to do that because I'm going to give you the answer. And if nobody guessed, then I guess I get another hydro flask. But of course, the answer to that question is Esther and Ruth. Esther and Ruth are the two women who have entire books of the Bible named after them. And so next week, Pastor Brad is going to focus on Esther. But for the sake of this morning, I want to share with you uh, Ruth's story. And we're not going to read it in its entirety. It's only four chapters long, and so I encourage you to, to do that later if you'd like to. But for the sake of this morning, I'm just going to give you kind of the Cliff's Notes, ver notes version, or, or I guess better yet, the Doug's Notes version, as it were. And then um, I, I just want to share with you three or four things that kind of jumped out at me as I reread this story this past week that hopefully will encourage you, especially will encourage you if you're going through any kind of difficulty in your life. Um, as I said, the book of Ruth is only four chapters long, and there are three main characters in this story. The widow, Naomi, the Moabite, Ruth, and the Israel farmer, Boaz. And as this story begins, we're, we're given kind of a, a time frame or a context for when and what was taking place, and it begins like this. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Okay, so right away we know that this was a time of great difficulty. The, the time of the judges was a difficult time for the nation of Israel, politically, relationally, and religiously. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. But on top of all of those problems, there was also this famine that was taking place in the land of Judah. And so we're told that in order to survive, Naomi and her husband Elimelech and their two sons moved from their hometown in Bethlehem to Moab, where there was food. Now, sometime after the food or the, the move, we're told that Naomi's husband winds up dying. Now, we don't know how, we just know that he dies. And we're also told that her two sons marry two Moabite women. And one of these women was named Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah, and the other was named Ruth. Well, tragically, 10 years later, both of Naomi's sons die. 
And, and, and so here these three women are with no husbands, living in this foreign land, no family to care for them, no one to provide for them. When all of a sudden, Naomi gets word that the famine in her hometown of Bethlehem is over. And so Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, they decide to go back to Bethlehem. However, along the way, Naomi has this thought. She, she realizes that both of her daughters-in-law are still young. And so there's a, a strong possibility that they could find husbands to care for them and provide for them. And, and even though her life has taken this tragic turn, they still have a lot of life to live. And so she urges them to leave her and to head back to Moab to find husbands and to care for themselves. Well, it, it takes a little convincing, but eventually Orpah winds up going back. But we're told that Ruth is so committed to Naomi that despite of Naomi's urging, Ruth refuses to go back. And, then, and, and she speaks these, these famous words. She says, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from you. For where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. And your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And so, so Ruth, in this, this beautiful pronouncement, she binds herself to Naomi, that wherever you go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be there with you, I'm going to take care of you, and I'm going to stick with you no matter what. And, and, and so she's making this commitment that uh, the commitment I have to my, my, my husband's family didn't end with his death, I'm still committed to you. This is an incredible, selfless act of commitment. And so these two women, they head back and they return to Bethlehem. And when they get there, all of the ladies who knew Naomi before she left, you know, they're all excited to see her. Naomi's back, Naomi's back. And, and when she sees them, we're told that she's not quite as excited. In fact, she responds by saying this, don't call me Naomi. Naomi is a name that means pleasant. She says, don't call me that anymore because my life has been anything but pleasant. Instead, she says, call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. And so why call me Naomi when the Lord has afflicted me and the Almighty has brought misfortune upon me? So remember, this, this story is about difficulty. And Naomi, the truth is, she's had it pretty rough, right? I mean, first of all, she has to leave her home. She has to leave her family because of this famine. And then her husband dies, and then she loses both of her sons, and she's left with no provider, no protector. She's left to live out her life in one of the lowest states of this particular culture as a widow. And so life has been pretty difficult. The truth is, for her, it's just been kind of bitter. And, and so what was so common for that day, she does something familiar. She changes her name to reflect her state in life. She says, my life is no longer pleasant. Now it's only bitter. The story goes on. 
uh, Ruth knows that it's up to her now to take care of not only herself but Naomi. And so it, it just so happens that it's the time for the barley harvest. And so Ruth goes out into the fields to follow after the harvesters. And in those days, there was this provision in the Levitical law where uh, landowners were instructed to allow the poor, the fatherless, the widows to go into the fields after the harvesters. And uh, whatever the harvesters happened to miss, these, these folks were allowed to, to harvest that, to take it for themselves, any leftover grain that was missed. And so this is what Ruth does. And it just so happens that the field that she finds herself in is owned by a man by the name of Boaz. And Boaz, it just so happens, is a relative of Naomi's late husband, Elimelech. Now, we're told that Boaz is a man of integrity and kindness, and so he sees Ruth out gathering grain, and his heart is drawn in kindness to her. And so he approaches her and he says, hey listen, Ruth, I don't want you to go anywhere else. You can work in my fields as much as you want. In fact, what I want you to do, just follow my servant girls, hang out with them. If you're, if you're thirsty, we've got water in these big jars for you, and you can help yourself. If you're hungry, we've got food for you. And he says, I've instructed the men, they're not to bother you. And in fact, what he really told the men was, make sure when you're out there, don't harvest all the grain. Make sure you drop some and leave some behind so that she'll have plenty to pick up. And so in the midst of this great difficulty, Boaz shows Ruth this incredible kindness. Well, at the end of the day, Ruth comes home and she brings so much grain home with her that Naomi, she's like, you know, what, what field did you work in? Well, when she finds out that it's Boaz's, who was, a, again, a relative of hers, Naomi comes up with this idea. The idea is for Ruth to act upon this custom which allowed a young widow to call upon the nearest male relative of her deceased husband to serve as what is known as the kinsman redeemer. Now, this idea of a kinsman redeemer, it's an important one. But, but essentially, a, a kinsman redeemer was responsible for three things. Number one, to redeem means to buy back. And so if a woman lost her husband and as a result of that, she lost her land, or even worse, if she had to sell herself as an indentured servant, then the kinsman redeemer would redeem or buy back the woman and the land. The, the, the second role of the kinsman redeemer was that of an, of, of an avenger, avenger to bring justice. So, for instance, if the husband was killed by somebody else, it was the kinsman redeemer's job to avenge that death and bring justice. And then, and then finally, the kinsman redeemer would become a husband to the widow. He, he, would, he would provide for her, he would protect her. And, and not only that, he would ensure that her late husband's name and family line would continue to live on. That any children that they had would be counted as the dead husband's heir and any land that had been redeemed would be passed on in order to carry on the family legacy. And, and all of this was done 
at great expense to the kinsman redeemer. It was purely an act of kindness where he gained nothing. And, and so Naomi, she instructs Ruth to prepare herself as a bride, to put on her best clothes, to, to put on some perfume, and then wait until evening after Boaz is finished threshing grain. And then when he falls asleep, Ruth, or Naomi tells Ruth to go and uncover his feet and lay down near him. Now, again, I know this sounds really weird to us, but in that culture, this was a sign of a woman asking a man to be her kinsman redeemer, to marry her. And so Ruth does what Naomi had instructed. She, she puts on her best clothes, she puts on some perfume, and she waits until Boaz falls asleep. She, she sneaks in and she uncovers his feet and she lays down. And, and in the middle of the night, Boaz wakes up. He discovers this woman laying at his feet, and he's like, who in the world are you? And I want you to listen to what Ruth says. She says, I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer of our family. Again, I know this is weird, but in this culture, just like uncovering somebody's feet and laying down next to them was an invitation of, hey, will you marry me? To provide a covering, to, to spread one's garment over her would have been his answer in agreement to fulfill this responsibility as a kinsman redeemer and marrier. And so Boaz agrees. Now, there, there's one little hiccup that gets in the way that we're not gonna get deep into. Again, you can read it later if you want to. But there's another man who is a closer relative who actually has the legal right if he wants to, to claim it. And, and so Boaz has to kind of work through all that and he navigates through it with, with great, uh, he, great wisdom. He's very shrewd in that. But the story ends with Ruth and Boaz marrying. He takes in both Ruth and Naomi. Ruth has a son. And through this son, the family line of Naomi is carried on. Okay, so, so that's the story. Now, why in the world is that story even in the Bible? I mean, why are there four whole chapters of the Old Testament dedicated to the story of Ruth? Well, there are lots of reasons, and we're not going to get into all of them, but I want to just share four that just kind of jumped out at me as I reread this story this past week. And again, I, I hope that it will encourage somebody, uh, especially if you're going through any kind of difficulty. The first one is this. As I, as I read this story, I was reminded, first of all, that every person goes through difficult seasons in their lives. Every one of us go through difficult times in our lives. And this story, as it begins, it begins again by letting us know, hey, this is a difficult, difficult time. First of all, it says it was the time of the, the judges which was a, a difficult period of time in the nation of Israel. It was, a, it was a time of division and disunity. It was a time when people couldn't get along. It, it was a time of religious and moral decline. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Th then it says, on top of all that, there was this famine. And, and so again, an entire nation is facing difficulty. 
And, and as the story progresses, you know, Naomi loses her husband. She loses her sons. Orpah loses a husband. Ruth loses, loses a husband. And finally, Naomi, she's to the point, she's experienced so much pain and difficulty in her life. She's like, you know what? My life used to be pleasant, but now it is nothing but bitter. She says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Now, and I have no doubt that, that some of you who are watching this today can identify with that. You know, life, life used to be pleasant, but now it just seems like it's nothing but bitter. At one time, life seemed so full, and then, and then in just a second, everything changed, and now it seems like it's just empty. It's funny how life can change on a dime, isn't it? I mean, one second, it, it seems like everything's going fine. Life is pleasant. And then all of a sudden, the rug just gets swept out from underneath your feet. And in just a moment in time, it just turns bitter. The reality is that that's just kind of part of the human condition. The, the writer of Ecclesiastes says that in life, there are all kinds of seasons. That, that there's a time to dance but there's also a time to mourn. That there's a time to laugh, but there's also a time to cry. In fact, one of my least favorite promises in all of the Bible comes directly from the mouth of Jesus. He says in John chapter 16 that in this world you will have trouble. I don't like that promise. But the truth is this, all of us, everybody faces difficulty. It's called being human. I think it's important to remember that whatever you're going through, there really are other people who understand. You see, one of the tricks of the enemy is to try and convince you that you're the only one. Listen, that's not true. Whatever you're going through, I want to assure you this morning that there are others who have gone through the same thing. You see, God sent Ruth to Naomi because she understood loss. Now, not only had Naomi lost a son, Ruth had lost a husband. By, by the way, could I just encourage you today that whatever, whatever difficulty, whatever tragedy you faced in your life, and we talk about this all the time around here, but I, I want to encourage you and remind you this morning that God never wastes a hurt. If you'll let him, God is the kind of God who he just kind of specializes in taking your greatest challenge, your greatest difficulty, and using it to help someone else, if you'll let him. Listen, there, there, there's nobody that better is capable of helping somebody who's lost a spouse than somebody who's lost a spouse. There, there's nobody better to help somebody who's been in prison than somebody who's been in prison. There's nobody better to help somebody who has struggled with an addiction than somebody who has struggled with an addiction. You see, there's just something about knowing I'm not the only one. And if God can help them, if God can stick with them, and if they can stick with God through the difficulty, then maybe there's hope for me too. 
Listen, I'll, I'll just tell you this personally. I am, I am way more drawn to people who have gone through stuff than, than those who it seems like their life is perfect. I mean, I can't, I can't relate to those folks. Give me somebody who's gone through great difficulty, who, who's still kicking, who's still fighting, and I'll choose those people every time. Those are my people. I am one of those people. And so number one is everybody goes through difficult seasons in life. The, the, the second thing that jumped out to me is this, is that in our difficulty, often it looks like God is doing nothing when in reality, God is doing something. It's interesting how, if we're not careful, how easy it is to fall into the lie of the enemy that because life has gotten hard, that because we're facing some kind of a, a difficulty, that because pain has entered into our life, that that must mean that God has turned his back on you. This is what Naomi is struggling with here. You see, because of her deep pain, and man, her pain was real. You can't deny the depth and the reality of her pain. It was real. I mean, come on, losing a husband, losing both sons, I can't even imagine that. So we can't discount the pain. But in the midst of her pain, she falls into this trap of believing that God, he must be mad at her, that, that God did this to her. She says, the Almighty has made my life bitter. I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. And you see, the problem is that because she bought into that lie, she was missing all of the ways that God was working on her behalf. That, that, that's what happens oftentimes when we experience great pain in our lives. Because of the pain, oftentimes we're blinded to the ways that God is working. For, for her, first of all, God brought her ho back home to a people who knew her and welcomed her and were there to support her. And, and, and not only that, she came back during a time of plenty. It was the barley harvest, and, and that was going to be followed by the wheat harvest, and so there was going to be plenty of food for them. But, but most of all, God had sent to her this committed friend in Ruth who was committed unto death to her welfare. You see, God was working. She just was unable to see it. And then I love this. In, in chapter 2, verse 3, it says that, you know, so, so Ruth went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. And as it turned out, I love how one translation puts it. It says, it just so happened that Ruth found herself working in the field belonging to Boaz. And it just so happened that Boaz was from the clan of Elimelech. And it just so happened that Ruth winds up in, in front of, of him and, and finds favor with him, the very person who is able to provide redemption for her. It just so happened. What just so happened? It, it just so happened that God was working. Listen, God is always doing something even when it seems like he's doing nothing. Who, who knows what God wants to do in your situation? 
who knows what, what pieces he's pulling together right now? Who knows whose heart he's moving upon right now? Who knows what coincidences he's lining up? Who knows what answers might just pop up in front of you tomorrow? God had a plan. Now, Naomi might not have known it, and Ruth may not have known it, and Boaz may not have known it, but God knew it. God had a plan, and he was working behind the scenes to accomplish his good and perfect will. Number three, when God is working, even when we don't see him working, what he's up to is always bigger than just you. God's plans are always bigger than just us. I love how this story ends. Boaz redeems Ruth. He takes her and Naomi into his home. Ruth winds up having a son. They name this son Obed. Later, Obed has a son. His name is Jesse. Jesse winds up having a son, and his name is David. And David becomes one of the greatest kings that the nation of Israel has ever known. Remember, during the time of Ruth and Naomi, the nation of Israel is divided. There is this great moral and religious decline, and God winds up using David, not only to unite the kingdom, but he uses David to lead the people back to devotion to God. You see, you see the plan that God had for Ruth was so much bigger than just fixing her situation. You know, we, we, we think in terms of now. We think in terms of individuals, while God is always thinking in terms of generations and nations. <clears throat> Listen, I, I'm convinced of this. What God wants to do in your life is way bigger than just you. God is, God is thinking of how he wants to move in the lives of your children. God is thinking of how he wants to move in the lives of your children's children and your children's children's children. Think about that. God already knows the impact that, that your descendants that haven't even been born yet are going to have on the world. This is why the enemy fights so hard. That it's not even so much about you. He knows how high the stakes are. I mean, he may not know specifically what God's plans are, but he knows that God's plans are exceedingly abundantly beyond anything any of us can think of or, or imagine. And, and so the enemy knows that if he can discourage you, if he can take you out and convince you that God is against you, he, he's not just going to destroy you. He knows that that in itself will impact history. This is what we're talking about here. I, I want you to watch this. Just jump forward 1,300 years. That's the time frame between Ruth and the birth of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1 begins with, with the part that we all tend to skip over whenever we're reading the Gospels, the genealogy. We're not going to skip it today. I want you to listen to what it says. It says, The record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, so here's the genealogy. Abraham was the father of Isaac. 
Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amenadab. Amenadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of who? Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Abed, whose mother was who? Ruth. Listen, don't miss this. This is so awesome. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. And when you keep on reading, 28 generations later, there's this little baby that is born in a dusty, dirty manger, and he's given the name Jesus, who would become the Savior of the world. You you see, God's plan was so much bigger than just Ruth and Boaz and Naomi because it was through them that the Messiah, Jesus, was born. The last one, and I love this one, God specializes in creating the most beautiful things out of our greatest messes. Please please don't miss this. We're told that Ruth was a Moabite. You know who the Moabites were? If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 19, Moab was the son of Abraham's nephew, Lot. And what happened was, after, after God rescued Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah, if you remember, uh, his family is fleeing Sodom, and God tells them, don't look back. And Lot's wife, she disobeys, she looks back, and she gets turned into a pillar of salt, right? And so Lot winds up taking his two daughters, and they wind up hiding out in a cave. And after some time, we don't know how long, One of the daughters is like, you know what, this isn't good. It's just us. There are no men to be our husbands. How are we going to preserve our family line? And this is one of the most disturbing stories of the Bible, but Lot's daughters wind up getting their father drunk. They sleep with him. Both of them get pregnant. The younger sister names her son Ammon, who becomes the father of the Ammonites, And the oldest sister names her son Moab, the father of the Moabites. This is Ruth's family. This is the line from which she comes from. And it's out of this incestuous family line that God chooses to bring forth the Messiah, the Savior of the world. It is, it is from this family line that God chooses this, in this mess, in this big mess, that God chooses Ruth to be the one who would give birth to a family of kings and ultimately the king of kings. Listen, you may be watching today and maybe you're convinced, you know, God can't use me, man. I, I don't come from a good family. My family is a mess. I'm not, I'm not good enough. I, I've made too many mistakes. I, I've made way too much of a mess of my life. Listen, 
I don't know what your mess is, and I don't need to know because it doesn't matter. The truth is, there is no mess that is too messy for God. There is no mess that is too messy for God. God still specializes in taking the, 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 the biggest messes of our lives, the greatest messes of our lives, and creating the most beautiful things from them. I mean, come on. Again, if he can take an incestuous family line and use it to produce the Savior of the world, then I think he can work in your life and my life as well. Maybe this morning there's somebody watching and maybe the best thing that you can do, whatever your mess is, is simply just take it, acknowledge it, and leave it at the feet of Jesus. In fact, what I want to do as we close is I want to just pray for you right now. Wherever you're watching this, I want to invite you to bow your head and close your eyes. And somebody's watching right now, I want you to know this moment is just for you. You've tried everything else and life still just doesn't seem to be working. This is your moment to surrender your life to Jesus. And, and I want to encourage you, if you're feeling that tug on your heart this morning, then that's the Holy Spirit. And so I want to invite you to just repeat this prayer after me. Jesus, I need you. I, I've sinned against you, and this morning I ask that you would forgive me. I ask that you would cleanse me of my sin and help me to live the rest of my days for you. And Father, this morning I believe that there are others who are watching who they know you and you know them, but today they find themselves in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of pain, in the midst of issues that are far greater than their ability to handle on their own. And so right now, Father, I ask that you would come alongside each one this morning. And I ask that you would help them to know, first of all, that they're not alone, that there are others who understand what it is to experience great pain in their lives. And then also, Father, I, I pray that you would remind them that even though it may look like you're doing nothing, oh, you are up to something. You're working behind the scenes and in due season, you will move as only you can. And then, Lord, I, I pray that you would also remind each one of us today that what you are doing is so much bigger than just us. You're able to look down through history and you see all of the things that you want to accomplish as you work in these situations right now. And so today, I pray that you'd help us just to release those to you. Even, even the big messes of our lives, the ones that maybe we've even created for ourselves and also those that we had no hand in, that they, they, they just came upon us. We pray today that you would do what you specialize in doing and that you would take these messes that seem so big to us 
and somehow as you work in them that you would create something that is beautiful and redeeming and useful, not only for us, but to the world around us. And so we're just going to trust you today. We're going to release all this to you and trust you in the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks again for worshiping with us. We want to encourage you to take the message you just heard and allow it to transform you. If today you made a decision to surrender your life to Jesus, we'd love to hear about it and celebrate with you. Please be sure to let us know. Until next week, know that we love you, we're praying for you, and we hope that you have a great week.